Amen. Morning, church. There's a line. Did you catch it? It is the heartbeat of my life to worship. It is the heartbeat of my life to worship in your light. Is that true for you? Is that true for you? Is your life out of rhythm if you're not worshiping? I look around, I see a lot of people worship. They aren't worshiping God. They're worshiping their careers, their hobbies, their interests, their possessions, what they want, their image. You know, I love football as much as the next guy. <laughs> Just a great transition, I know, right? <laughs> when I read this stat this week, it staggered me that 70% of Americans are football fans. All right, what's wrong with the other 30? I'm kidding. But 70%, but, but over half are excited about football. And even almost a third would say they are passionate about it. That's interesting to me. I mean, you, you, maybe you've been a part of this, a, a part of the football crowd that will spend good hard-earned money on tickets and overpriced concessions just so we can go out and brave the elements and stand in the rain, the snow, whatever the weather, the inclement weather doesn't matter. We want to be a part of the crowd cheering on the team. We will stand in long lines. We will sit in hard, uncomfortable seats, and we will scream our lungs out to cheer on our team to victory. But then Sunday morning comes, and we see the same person, just stoic, disengaged, quiet, not happy with the seating. And if the weather is bad, well, they're not going to make it. You see, a lot of people are worshiping, but what are they worshiping? That we are more devoted to a team of a silly game than we are to God. This Thursday, I know, is a day where many of us are going to give thanks and sit around the table. But the crowd, what will happen with the crowd a few hours later the next day? They'll go out in long lines, worship the God of consumerism to get what it is that they think they need what they want. That makes them feel alive. It's amazing what a crowd will do when they really want something. The links that people will go to to get what they think they want. We're, I was talking about this with my wife, Megan, and she reminded me back in 2007, she was meeting with a friend at a restaurant and, and all of a sudden they see this line forming outside and just wondering what in the world is going on. And it was the release of Apple's first iPhone. Yes, there was a time before iPhones. It's crazy. I, can, I live to tell about it. The, the, the people, people were forming a line and were there hours and hours, even a day before standing in line just so they could be sure to get the new iPhone. It's amazing the power of a crowd and what a crowd will do when they think they can get what they want. That's where our text picks up today. We find a crowd who is excited in Luke chapter 19, a crowd who thinks they are going to be getting what they want. 
But before we read in Luke 19, let's take a moment and let's just ask God to bless the reading of his word. God, we thank you for your love and your goodness. We thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that you will guide our hearts, that you will block distractions, that your spirit would guide us in your truth and we wouldn't just be hearers, but we would be doers of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name and all who agree say, amen. amen. Luke 19, starting in verse 28. And when he, that's Jesus, had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You should say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is Luke's account of what we call the triumphal entry. This event in Jesus' ministry and life is recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It were, there was such significance. Not, not many events are in all four, but this was one of those that, that made it into all four. And Jesus, notice he sends two disciples to go and to go get this colt, to get this donkey. And look at the instruction he gives them. I mean, it would be like this. It would be like the Lord is saying, all right, I want you to go to Sholo. And when you get to Sholo, you're going to find a brand new car that's never been driven with the keys in. I want you just to hop in and bring it back. And if anyone tries to stop you, you just say, Jesus needs it. <laughs> right. That's, the disciples had to be thinking, what in the world are we getting into? But yet, and I fact, I fact check this with Ernie, okay? Jesus will never tell you to steal a brand new car, okay? Make sure we're clear. Maybe a used one. No, no. Jesus is not going to tell you to steal a car. But this is exactly how it plays out with the disciples, that this crowd is not just the 12 disciples. This whole crowd is Jesus' disciples. Think about what they had seen. This is why they're praising what they had seen. They had seen Jesus heal the sick. They had seen him give sight to the blind. They'd seen him cleanse the lepers. He had healed the lame. But recently, he had just done the, the most amazing. He had raised his homeboy, Lazarus, from the dead. When you see someone who's been dead for over half a week back to life, 
you start to think Jesus is the real deal. The crowd is excited because they have seen miracle after miracle. They are flocking to Jesus and putting their faith in him. But not everyone's excited. The religious leaders are furious. John tells us that they were actually plotting how they could kill Jesus and Lazarus too, because after Jesus raised Lazarus, everybody was coming. It was as if in their world, they say that the whole world was flocking to Jesus and putting his faith in him. He was threatening their power base. Jesus riding this donkey, this colt, is not just a random part of the story. I mean, why would it be in all four gospels? This part is huge because it once again is God fulfilling prophecy through the Messiah, Jesus. Think about this. Over 500 years earlier through the prophet Zechariah, God declared that the Messiah, the king, would run right in on a donkey, not on a stallion, not on a war horse, but on a humble donkey symbolizing his peace. This prophecy, prophecy is not easy. I can't, I can't tell you what's going to happen later tonight, let alone 500 years before. You see, this shows God is sovereign. When we worship and we say God is sovereign, well, what do we mean? We mean God is over all things. He is king. Jesus riding in on the donkey shows that that God is sovereign. He knew his plan and his will. It was going to come about. He was going to bring it together. God is over all things. He is the king. He is the Lord. He created all things. He is therefore over all things. He's not limited by uh, uh, constraints like we are. He is unbounded, unlimited in power can do everything, not confined. And the fact that Jesus tells the disciples where it's going to be, how it's going to play out, that the owners would give permission. It just shows God's ability to bring things together, Jesus' ability to know all things. And then I'm told, I've never broken in a a donkey, a colt, but I'm told it's a miracle just in that Jesus sits on this colt that's never been ridden and doesn't get bucked off. And he's... So think about this. He's in control. He's bringing prophecy together. But, but why did he tell the disciples to go? Think about it. Uh, if he knew it was going to happen, and he did, couldn't he have just forced the donkey to show up there on his own? He could have. But you see, this shows our, our, our father is in the business of inviting us to partner with him in his work. Jesus gives an opportunity for the disciples to be part of this, for the owners to be part of this, that God invites us to be part of his work. Last week, we shared the quote, it's not that God's church has a mission, it's that God's mission has a church. You ever wonder why? I mean, if God would just do it himself, it'd be done right the first time. It'd be a lot more efficient. But you see, I I guess efficiency doesn't matter when you're not bound by time and space. He thinks totally differently. So why does the sovereign God choose to partner with us? I believe it's his desire to see his children partnering in his work. 
When God created in, in the garden, Adam and Eve, Genesis, he created them to exercise dominion, to rule with him over creation. But then he created man. Man is his prized possession, his prized creation, that God didn't just create man like everything else. He created man in his own image. Whenever there's a newborn baby, I love the reactions of family, right? Both sides of the family want to see that that newborn looks like them, right? Right? You want to see, the, you want to see yourself in them. I, I think the father's no different. He wants to see his children reflect him. He wants to see himself in us. He wants to see us in his work, working for his mission, carrying out his plans and his will. That's why he doesn't just force it to come together. He invites them to be part of this. Now look at verse 37 and 38 real quick. The whole multitude of his disciples rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. Why? For all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is what? The king. You gotta remember, they are thinking that, the disciples are thinking that the kingdom is going to appear, appear immediately and that the king is here. The crowd is worshiping and it's loud, it's exciting. But think, in just a few days, in just a few days, their worship will fade. The crowd that is calling him king right now, that is lifting him high, in just a few days, they are going to shout, crucify him. What happened? For the crowd to go from singing his praises loud, why in such a short time by Friday does everything change? Why is it that, that his closest followers, all of the crowd will disperse and turn against Jesus? Even his closest followers will de desert him. He'll be betrayed and denied, beaten, mocked, flogged, nailed to a cross. This isn't what the crowd wanted. See, what did the crowd want? The crowd wanted Jesus to, to overthrow Rome. The crowd worshiped Jesus as king because they thought he was going to be a king that did what they wanted him to do. They thought he would serve them. You look, when Jesus fed the 5,000, when he fed the 5,000, the crowd tried to make him king by force. They didn't want Jesus to be king for God's purposes. They wanted Jesus to be king for their purposes. The crowd wanted what they wanted, and that's why they worshiped. You see, it's so important that we get this, that, that we do not worship Jesus because of what he can do for us. That is not why we worship him. Don't get me wrong. There are blessings that come from Jesus being king, from Jesus being Lord of your life. Blessings that I, 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 I don't misunderstand. I am so thankful for what he's done for me. I am so thankful for how he's changed my life and for what he does. But that cannot be the only reason we worship him. We worship him because he is Lord. He is king. He is sovereign. 
You see, worship is, is more than just singing and declaring praise. Worship is more than just what we do here for a little bit on Sundays when we're gathered together. In fact, worship is something that is ongoing and that every single person on the face of this planet does. Every single one of us worships. It's instinctual. You know how we would all agree animals have instincts, right? That birds instinctually know to fly to warmer weather when winter comes. They don't get a brochure or see a commercial on TV and say, oh, we should go. They know to migrate. A dog, a dog has instincts, right? A dog is instinctually loyal to their master. Even when they're sick or injured, a dog is instinctually loyal. A cat, a cat has instincts to levitate and bring evil spirits into a house. And I, I'm kidding, okay? Cat people, don't send me a nasty email. I'm kidding. But humans, we have instinct as well. We have the instinct to worship. We naturally will give our adoration and affection to someone or something. We are going to say, life is worth this, that I'm going to give my affection, my time, my energy. I am going to invest in this because this is what is worthy of my worship. This is what is worthy of my life. Worship is what we live for. Romans chapter 12, Paul writes to the church at Rome. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Hold on to that word right there, sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed. What's worship look like? Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed. You see, worship is all about determining value. Worship is determining worth. And so let me ask, what is God worth to you? What is God worth? Stop and ponder. What is God worth? Your response to that will determine your worship. It is your worship. You see, God is the only one that is truly worthy of our worship. We, if we were to boil the word worship down to its simplest forms, it simply means to to bow down, to serve. It is reverence in action. Reverence and action, and that our, our actions will prove our reverence to be true, the connection of our reverence. If our, you, our lives are all governed by worship, if, you're, if, you're, if you worship your body, you will be governed by lust. If you worship possessions and wealth, you will be governed by your desire to attain, and you will find you never have enough. If you worship yourself, and your desires, you will be governed by your appetite. If you worship security, you will be governed by control. If you worship a relationship, you will be governed by their view of you and and their happiness. And if you worship Jesus Christ, you will be governed by his word, his love. It is in our nature to worship. And since the fall, we have been worshiping, but we have been worshiping the wrong things. 
not just God. See, the problem isn't the things. and uh, The problem is that we love those things more than we should. The problem is that we love those things more than God. For example, you know, parents will, will worship their child's happiness. Their child doesn't want to learn about Jesus. Okay, we're not going to learn about Jesus. The child doesn't want to worship. We're not going to worship. Is there anything wrong with a child or with a parent wanting a child to be happy, though? No, nothing's wrong with that. But when they put that above everything else, that becomes the problem, and it ends in disaster. You're either going to have a spoiled brat that no one wants to be around, or you're going to make yourselves miserable and in the end lead to their destruction. For instance, you know, if your child wants ice cream for supper every night, and you give it to them because you want them to be happy, it's ultimately going to lead not to their happiness, but to their destruction. The same is true for us. When we worship anything other than God, it will ultimately lead to our destruction. That is why God is a jealous God. He has to be jealous of our worship because he knows anything else is far from loving us. It will end in our destruction. Job, we read of Job in the Old Testament, a man who knew what it was like to have everything and worship God and a man who knew what it was like to lose everything and still worship God. In the midst of his pain, in the midst of the trial, Job in Job 23 says, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. That's where I want to be. That's where we all should want to be. To be able to say that we want God's word even more than our daily bread. To value his word more than anything else. That's why the spiritual discipline of fasting, of giving up food in order to focus on God and time and prayer. That's why it can be so powerful and we see so many breakthroughs. And yes, I know Thursday is Thanksgiving. It's not the best time for a message on fasting. I know, I know, but hear me out. But this is just proof. Why is there breakthrough in fasting? Because we get our priorities aligned. Because instead of focusing on what's temporary, we're focusing on God and what's eternal. That's why there's power and breakthrough. When we worship God and have everything aligned, he is where he's supposed to be. We find blessing. We find life. We find hope. We find freedom. We find joy. We find all these things that everybody goes seeking out and can't attain are found only in him. You see, worship, though, it involves sacrifice. Sacrifice. Jesus knew where this road was leading. Jesus knew the road was leading to a cross. He didn't blink an eye or slow down. You see, the path of Jesus will always lead to the cross. The path of Jesus leads to a cross where we find forgiveness. The cross does not just give us a reason to worship Jesus, though. The cross gives us confidence 
in our worship. The cross is where we see God's love for us and know that nothing in all of creation will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. The cross is where we find that we are forgiven, that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. The cross gives us confidence because the blood of Jesus is more powerful than anything you or I could ever do. The cross gives us confidence because we know we can be set free from sin. Jesus became came sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. The cross gives us confidence that if God is for us, then nothing can stand against us. We are more than victorious because of the cross. And following Jesus will always lead to the cross. Jesus even made it clear. If anyone wants to follow me, he must deny himself and what? Pick up his cross. See, worship involves sacrifice. Worship involves sacrifice. In 2 Samuel chapter 24, King David is wanting to make a sacrifice right where he's at. To God immediately, and so he goes to a guy named Aaronos' place. Aaronos sees King David coming in and runs out to, uh, to meet him and just bows, says, King David, what in the world are you doing here? What do you want with me? And David said, I have come to, to buy your property. I am going to offer a sacrifice. And Aaronos Man, he was a good servant of the king. He tried to make it as easy as possible. He said, David, no, you don't have to buy it. Here, you can just have it. Here's the property. Here, you can have this wood for the altar to offer the sacrifice. And you can even have this oxen. He tried to make it as easy and convenient for King David as possible. But David refused to accept. He insisted that he pay. Because he said, listen to this. This is exactly what he says. He says, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord. Lord, my God, that cost me nothing. David knew it wasn't worship unless it cost. My brother-in-law went to uh, a college, Indiana Wesleyan. He's, uh, it, it, long story short, he was in the choir, uh, the, the college choir, and they would lead worship and had Professor Guy. Professor Guy was one of the best guys, nicest guys in the world. He expected the choir, though, to do their absolute best when leading worship. And so he expected that they memorized the songs and that they would, the whole choir would truly engage and that they would lead worship with passion and energy. And there was a practice where Jonathan, Megan's brother, tells me that, that the choir was just going through the motions. They hadn't memorized the lyrics they were just mumbling the words. They weren't truly engaged. And Professor Guy, the nicest professor in the world, takes his fist and pounds the podium so hard that it makes his knuckles bleed and the podium's just a, a broken mess. And he says, don't you ever give God something that costs you nothing and walked out. And that was a lesson that stuck with those students that day. David knew it wasn't worship unless it cost. How many times do we give worship that, that costs us little to maybe even nothing? 
We don't want to commit to anything. We don't want to be tied down so we don't commit to serve anywhere. We don't commit to be a part of the work or we rush out of service as quick as we can because we've got something else that we really want to do. We don't like the song today or the worship set. And so we're just sit there with our arms crossed and don't engage in worship. If we do, we're just mumbling along. Or after the service is over, what we walk out and evaluate as if it was all about us, right? We ask, how, how was the worship? Thinking, that might determine if I want to go or not. The question we should ask is, how is my worship? It's more than just what we do here. How is my worship? I, you are the only one that can bring your worship before the king. You are the only one that can worship him. That you are the one who brings the sacrifice of praise. Worship isn't about us. We get that twisted. Worship is all about God. There is going to be a cost in worship to say that God is worth more, that he must increase and I must decrease. And John, the gospel of John, right before John talks about the triumphal entry, he tells the story of Mary's extravagant display of worship of Jesus. If you remember Lazarus, the disciples, Jesus, Mary and Martha are there. And Mary takes an expensive perfume worth, worth a year's wages and gives it to Jesus. Her display of worship is so extravagant that John says it, it filled the house. You can just imagine the fragrance permeating everyone's senses that maybe they even walked away smelling like it too that nothing was too costly nothing was too expensive nothing was too much to worship Jesus let me ask Mary's worship changed the house what about yours has your worship changed the house I know there, there is time where we, the worship is private. I know not everything is a show that we go in secret. But her worship here changed the room, changed the house. There are times when our worship should change the house. So what does your worship of Jesus cost you? Like the crowd, it's easy for us to worship Jesus when, when things are going good, when everything is just gravy, baby, you know? It seems like every prayer you're offering is getting answered. Life is going the right direction. Everyone's doing good. Everyone's healthy. Promotions are happening. It's easy. But what about when it starts to cost? Is it easy to praise him, to worship him when it costs? What is Jesus worth to you then? Let me ask, when you think about worshiping him with everything, all that you are, what is it that you're worried about? What is it that you're worried it's going to cost you, that you know there's a cost in order to magnify him, that you know you're holding back? What is it that you are worried about? You know. You see, I ask, what are you worried about? Because worry reveals worth. Worry reveals our values. 
For example, you've, you've never gone to bed worrying about my career choice or my 401k or my kids grades in school or my car troubles, anything like that about me, right? You have never gone to bed worrying about that. You selfish people. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Just like you've gone to bed worrying about yours, right? Your career choice, your physical health, your conditions, your test results, your kids. You worry about that. Why? Because you care about that. You love that. You see, worry, it can reveal what, is, what it is we worship instead of God. Worry can reveal a distrust in God. We're told not to, to worry. We're told to pursue him first, right? To seek his kingdom, his righteousness. All these things will be given to us as well, right? All these worries that the world runs after. They don't know the father. You do, so why are you worried about him? If he takes care of birds and he takes care of flowers and he takes care of all the creation, won't he take care of you? See, worry is the opposite of worship. It is distrust. Worship reveals trust. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But how do you worship not only when it costs, but when the feeling just isn't there? What about when you feel like God has let you down? When you have prayed and prayed and in a situation instead of getting better has gotten worse. When the loss is so painful, when the loss hurts and the feeling to worship is just not there. Will you like Job still choose to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. You see the crowd praising Jesus that day on his way into Jerusalem. Their worship faded when they didn't get what they wanted. But what about you? How long will your worship last? Maybe the better question is to ask, why? Why do you worship? Why do you choose to follow Jesus? If we were to be brutally honest about this, why? Why are you here today to worship? Some of us would have to say, you know, honestly, I'm following and worshiping just because I'm hoping he can fix me. That I've got problems, I've made a mess of things, and I need him to fix me. He can and he does, don't misunderstand me, but that is not the sole reason for our worship. That can't be, because what happens after he fixes you? Will you still worship him? Some of us, if we're honest, would say, you know, I'm here because of my broken marriage. There's been so much hurt and so much pain that I just, we need Jesus to fix us that we could have a happy home life again. He can and he does, but that is not an adequate reason to worship him. Because what happens after he does that? How will your worship last? It will fade away like the crowd. Maybe some are saying, man, I've got so many emotional problems that, that I, need, I need some inner peace and joy in my life. That's not a good enough reason. You know, hardships and trials, persecutions can actually increase when you follow Jesus. Why do we worship? What, do you, what, does it, what is the reason to worship? It's because of who he is. The main reason to follow Jesus is because he is Lord. 
He is the sovereign Lord of authority who works all things together according to the counsel of his will. He is the Lord of creation who spoke the universe into existence, who created you for his purpose. He is the Lord of prophecy who has revealed in his word and advanced the course of human history. He is the Lord of all before whom one day every knee will bow. He is the gracious Lord of salvation who gave his life so that all who believe in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. We praise him. We worship him because he is Lord. You see, you think about heaven. The heavenly creatures never stop praising him. Not because of what he done. Why? Because of who he is. They cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. It's all about who he is that should drive our worship. Jesus going into Jerusalem that day, he shows there is nothing the Savior won't do for us. There is nothing that he wouldn't do. Will you follow him? Will you worship him? Or will your worship fade like the crowd? So what are we going to do? I want to challenge you to three things. One, worship him like never before. Worship God like Jesus did with all of his life. In order to worship God, we've got to know God. So we have to get in the word. That's how we learn to worship him better. Get a Bible study, have a plan. If you don't have one, start with Matthew uh, chapter five through seven, the Sermon on the Mount this week. Start there. Shows how to worship. And then pray like Jesus. Pray for, for God's will to be done and to be a partner in that will. And then I want to challenge you to serve like Jesus. That's living differently in a culture all about self-gratification, about getting what we want, looking out for ourselves. Man, live differently. Serve like Jesus. That is how we worship. That is where we offer the sacrifice of praise. Our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. It will cost but he's worth that and so much more. You know, when the, when the Pharisees confronted Jesus about the loud crowd, about the disciples' worship and how loud the, the crowd had gotten, Jesus looked at them and he said, the rocks and the stones, they can't be silent. The rocks and the stones will cry out if they're silent. I don't know about you, church, but there is nothing, no rock, no stone, no boulder, nothing in all of God's creation that is going to worship in my place. How about you? Love you, church.